this morning is from 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 16. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain, this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he held it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Hello, my name is Linda Bailey. For those who are new and visiting, I'm part of the ministry team here at One. For those of you who are quite regular to One and have been here over the last couple of weeks, you might be thinking, yes, we've seen you quite a bit. Unfortunately, I was not meant to be preaching today. Tim was meant to be preaching today, but uh, unfortunately he has got quite unwell. He's on the mend, I believe, but uh, made a call uh, halfway through the week that he didn't feel he would be able to preach this morning. And so he thankfully gave me his notes that he had already made on the sermon. And so with Tim's notes and with some of my own research and a lot of prayer over the last couple of days, uh, we bring you this sermon. Kind of, you know, two for the price of one deal. Let's look at it that way, shall we? Uh, well, let, let me pray and then we'll get into the sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our senior minister, Tim. We thank you for the gifts and the abilities that you have bestowed upon him and he has grown in and continues to grow in. We thank you for his vision. We thank you for his passion, for his wisdom, for his discernment. And God, most of all, we thank you that in all that he does, he leans into you and your Holy Spirit to be guided and prompted. God, we pray for the message today. 
We pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to hear not my voice, to hear not Tim's voice or any past theologian's voice, but God, we open our hearts to hear your voice today. And may you speak to each one of us as we enter into a time where we hear your voice through your scripture. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. I have to give a big shout out to the 5.30 service as well. Uh, before I knew I was preaching, I had been given permission to enjoy some Mother's Day celebrations this evening. So unfortunately, I can't be at the 5.30 service in person, but they will be watching this on the screen. So how about our 10 o'clock congregation? Give a big hello to our 5.30 congregation. And know that whether you are at the 10 o'clock or at the 5.30, I have been thinking of all people as I've been preparing this sermon and uh, feel that it is a, a great and important message for, for everyone. Well, a couple of years ago, I went to a conference and uh, at the start of one of the speakers uh, presenting at the conference, they asked us to pair up and play a quick little game. And it was a game of hand slaps. So if you don't know how this works, what it is is that one person puts their hand out flat like this and the other person they're playing against puts their hand above it. And the aim for the person below is to reach up and slap the hand of gently and carefully and with the love of the Lord. Uh, and tap the hand of the person above. It's the person with their hand above, it's their aim to remove their hand quickly enough so they don't get slapped. We had 60 seconds to play this game and you got a point for each round that you won, whether you were the person tapping the hand or moving it away. Well, I was on my own in this conference. I didn't know anyone else, so it took me a little while to find someone else who was on their own and didn't have a partner, and then we kind of reminded ourselves how the game worked, and finally we got underway about halfway through the allocated time, and soon enough the time was up. And I had, I think, about five points, and my partner had seven points. So as they gathered us all back round and got our attention, they had to find out who was the overall winner because the overall winner was going to get a ticket to the conference in a year's time, which was worth about 100 bucks. It was really worthwhile. It was a great conference. And so we all had to find out. Well, I knew clearly I wasn't going to win. I hadn't even won within my partner and I, let alone the whole conference. So they started off, who got five points or more? And we, most people raised their hands. Then they said, who got 10 points or more? Well, a few people, including us, put our hands down, but there's still lots of people with their hands up. 30 points or more. I was quite surprised. There's still quite a lot of people with their hands up, thinking, wow, we were really terrible at this game. 60 points or more. Now, quite a few hands went down, but there were still quite a few hands up in the air. In the end, the winner of the grand prize of the conference ticket got 123 points. And I'm thinking, 
with my measly five. How did this happen? How could this be? This is 60 seconds. This is absolutely ridiculous. We found out what had happened is as they had paired up, their partner said to them, I want you to win this ticket. This is such a great conference. I think you'll really benefit from being this. Tell you what, put your hand, I will put my hand still. You tap it as many times as you can for that minute. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So now I get everyone who has a competitive spirit is like dying inside, right? But this really spoke to me. I thought this person was willing to lose in order for their partner to get the prize. Someone was willing to take a hit, literally, calmly, nicely, but was willing to lose in order for someone else to have gain and to win. We're currently in a series on King David, on David, who we read about in 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. And we've heard about how uh, he, a couple of weeks ago, we heard that he was the anointed uh, king to be, even though he was just a shepherd boy. He was anointed even as Saul was still on the throne. Last week, we heard about him fighting Goliath and the underdog winning and beating the, the mammoth man of, of Goliath. And today we're looking, as we've had read to us today, we're looking at how Saul and Jonathan respond to David after he has beaten Goliath. And we're able to see in these two different people how differently someone can respond. Now, as a side note, this gives us great assurance too as well. Saul and Jonathan were related. Jonathan was Saul's eldest son. They were in the same family. They had the same genetics. Jonathan grew up under Saul's leadership, under his father's fatherhood. And yet, they made completely different decisions. So it doesn't matter about our upbringing. It doesn't matter about our genetics. It doesn't matter about our family we can make completely different choices to those within our families. So let's have a look at the two different decisions that Saul and Jonathan made. Let's start off with Saul. Now, as we see in this image and as we heard in our Bible reading this morning, Saul was not happy about what everyone was saying about David. Even though David had done something great for the whole nation, Saul was not happy. Even though David was just this shepherd boy who had come in, he was not of royalty, he was not anyone significant. Last week we looked at how simple David was. His family was not a family of significance. He wasn't even the eldest son in his family. He was number eight. And yet the king of Israel, Saul, who had access to all wealth, all power, anything he said, everyone would do for him. That's the power and authority that the king had. And yet he thought so poorly of David 
that he literally tried to kill him. We hear it a couple of times in this passage that David got away from being killed by Saul. As you read through the next couple of chapters in 1 Samuel, you also read that it became Saul's like greatest passion to actually kill David and get rid of him. Because the problem that Saul had was that he was too busy listening to what other people were saying rather than listening to what God was saying to him. In this passage, we heard uh, everyone sung, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Unfortunately, this is what got Saul into, into trouble to begin with. Saul listened to the people around him rather than obeying God. And he made some terrible decisions before we even hear about David. And from that, God removed his anointing and found a better future king in David. And so here again, we hear Saul listening to the people, worrying about what the people are saying, rather than worrying about what God would have to say to him. And he is filled with envy. He is filled with hatred and, and murderous thoughts towards David because of the envy that is in his heart. So much so that he desires to tear someone down rather than give them anything worthwhile. Instead of seeing the happiness and the greatness and the potential of someone else, he just views it through his envious eyes and only sees how this actually affects him negatively rather than how it can affect him positively. Now, unfortunately, the whole idea about envy did not die with Saul. Unfortunately, the whole idea of envy that we read about in this passage is not the last time we hear about envy. We hear about envy throughout all of the Bible, throughout all of history. It brings upon wars and broken relationships and hatred. And, you know, it even comes into our own households. I don't know about you, but envy in our household sounds like this. It's not fair. Do you hear that in your households? No, that's good. You've got perfect households in our household. It's not fair when someone gets a millimetre more soft drink in their cup. It's not fair when someone has to put one extra spoon in the dishwasher. It's not fair when someone else gets like three seconds more screen time. It's not fair. Seeing what someone else has and thinking that we're missing out because someone else has some slight benefit over us. And I'd love to say that this emotion, this feeling, this envy only happens within our children. But how often do I even catch myself when I compare myself with someone else? And I think, oh, it's not fair. They've got so much more than me. 
They're better looking than me. They've got more friends than I do. They just seem to have a much better life than me. They've got more free time. They've got more money. Whatever it might be, it seeps into our lives in every single way. Moya Sander, who's a journalist for the Guardian newspaper, writes this. We live in the age of envy. Career envy, kitchen envy, children envy, food envy, upper arm envy, holiday envy. You name it, there's an envy for it. Human beings have always felt what Aristotle defined in the 4th century BC as pain at the sight of another's good fortune, stirred by those who have what we ought to have. Oh, isn't that true? That we experience pain at the sight of another's good fortune. And the thing about our world today is that we don't just compare ourselves to our family, to our friends, to our colleagues, to our peers, to our fellow students, to our neighbours. But because of our incredible world of media and communication, whether it's on social media or on the telly or in advertising, we can compare ourselves to pretty much anyone in the whole world. And this culture of comparison continually comes up. It's everything that marketing is based on. You don't have what this person has, so buy this product or do this or be this certain way so that you can be as good as them. This constant comparison builds within us envy of what others have. That we feel pain. We feel like we're missing out if we don't have what everyone else has. Jonathan Edwards, who was a, a preacher and a theologian in the 1700s, he wrote a sermon on envy, a long, impressive, powerful uh, message about envy. And this is just a small part of it. When he talks about what envy does to us, he says it is like a powerful eating cancer, preying on the vitals, offensive and full of corruption. And it is the most foolish kind of self-injury for the envious make themselves trouble most needlessly, being uncomfortable only because of others' prosperity, when that prosperity does not injure themselves or diminish their enjoyments and blessings, but they are not willing to enjoy what they have because others are enjoying also. That is what envy does in our lives. That is what it eats away at, just like a cancer eats away at even all the good cells within our bodies. So too, envy eats away at the goodness, the happiness, the gratitude, the appreciation of what we have in our lives when we compare ourselves to someone else. And when we see it working out in this passage, we see it eats away so much at Saul that he feels the best thing to do would be to actually get rid of David. Now, 
If we are all honest with ourselves, we all experience envy at some stage. And this isn't about grief and loss because they are valid emotions for us to feel. When we uh, truly miss out on something or, or grieve something that we don't have, but to take that next step into envy of not valuing someone else because they have it, it doesn't just eat away at ourselves. It takes away. Just like Saul wanted to murder David, envy in our lives. It murders our happiness. It murders our gratitude. It murders our appreciation. And it can murder relationships, healthy relationships that we can have with those around us. But the great thing about this passage is it doesn't just show us one option. It shows us two. Saul wanting those murderous thoughts towards David based on his envy. Here we see Jonathan making choices on the absolute opposite spectrum. In this passage, we read about what Jonathan chooses with David. Now, let's keep in mind, Jonathan, the eldest son of the king, means that what all the other nations were doing, he would be next in line for the throne. In actual fact, Jonathan had more to lose out of David being anointed as king than what Saul had. And yet this is what we hear that Jonathan does. At the start of the passage that we read, we read that he loved David as himself. Isn't that the opposite of envy? Instead of feeling bad towards someone because of what they have and what we don't have, he loved David as himself. Everything that he desired and he wanted for himself, he desired and he wanted for David as well. And if you've been around church a little while, these words may ring a bell. To love someone else as you love yourself. A thousand years later, Jesus himself said it. When someone asked him what the greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. The first, and uh, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you hear of a character in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who is saying and doing what we hear Jesus do, then it's worth us kind of sitting up and taking note. The fact that Jonathan was willing to love David as himself, which is what Jesus actually calls every single one of us who believe in him and want to follow him to do. But Jonathan didn't just stop there. It goes on. Jonathan made a covenant with David. Now, if you look at the original uh, Hebrew in this and even how it has been translated, this is Jonathan initiating this covenant with David. This is on, on Jonathan's initiation. Now, David goes along with this covenant, but Jonathan is the one who initiates it. He 
is the one that goes out of his way to make this covenant, this partnership with David. And if Jonathan loved David as himself, just like Jesus taught us to do, if Jonathan makes a covenant with David, then it helps us to align how, in fact, Jesus makes a covenant with each one of us. God made a covenant with all of his people in giving them the law, helping them know how to live, how to love, how to live in community. And then he gave them a sacrificial system where they would have to uh, sacrifice animals to ask for forgiveness to be made right with God. But in Jesus' life, how he lived, how he loved, in his death and his resurrection, before he went to the cross, he shares the Passover meal with the disciples. And he says this in Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Just as Jonathan made a covenant with David to declare his allegiance to him, his protection of him, to show that he loved him as much as he loves himself, so too Jesus made a covenant, not just with one person, not just with the nation at the time, but Jesus made this covenant for all people of all time so that for us to have a loving relationship with our great and mighty God, we come to the cross to Jesus' sacrifice, the covenant that he made with us, and we ask for forgiveness, and that ushers us in to a personal, loving, close relationship with our God. But Jonathan goes on. He also took off the robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David. Now, this robe that he was wearing showed that he was the son of the king. It was a symbol of his place in the hierarchy, in the monarchy of the time. Now, we are only one week off the coronation of King Charles III. And in it last week, we saw Prince William dressed in his finery. He had a robe that declared his place in the royal family. And he gave his allegiance to his father, the king. Now, can you imagine that during the coronation, Prince William comes up, he gives his allegiance to King Charles, and then he stands up and he takes off his royal robe. And he says to King Charles, I give you my allegiance, but you know what? This robe that represents who is going to take on the throne, I'm actually going to give it to someone else. And I'm not going to give it to my son, George, who would be next in line after me. I'm actually not even going to give it to anyone in the royal family. I'm going to give it to some random guy who is not part of the royal family, doesn't even live in London. I mean, he lives, you know, in one of the outer towns and cities of the UK. Uh, he's not even the eldest son of his family. He's actually number eight. But I actually think he should be the future king 
Can you imagine the uproar? Can you imagine the headlines the next day? This is what Jonathan is doing. He's handing over his position and giving it to David. And then he even hands over his sword, his bow and his belt. He hands over his weapons. Now, if you are to hand your sword to someone, you tend to hand it with the hilt forward, the handle forward, so that they can then grab the sword safely. But if someone is grabbing your sword safely, where's the pointy end? Right at you. When you hand your sword over to someone, you are becoming completely vulnerable to them. You are giving all power, all authority, even over your own life, to the person you are handing your sword to. And here is Jonathan, who had everything to gain by being Saul's son. And yet he hands over to David his commitment, his allegiance, his position, his power, and he gives it all to David. Now, as we've been looking at Jonathan's actions and seeing how closely they align with Jesus' actions, we read in Philippians chapter 2, this is the mindset of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ showed us all when he was here on earth, who being in very nature God, in heaven, in royalty, the son of the king of kings, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took off his robes. He took off his sword. And by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus took off his royal robes to become but a babe in Bethlehem. He took off all the weapons of heaven that he had at his disposal and he handed it over. And what did we do with it? We nailed him to a cross and we pierced his side because we wanted what God had of all power and all glory and all control. And Jesus was willing to give it all to us, not so that he would win, but so that every single one of us would have victory over sin and death as he had victory over sin and death. Edward says, the spirit of envy is the very contrary to the spirit of heaven, where all rejoice in the happiness of others. Envy that eats away at us, that destroys and kills. It takes away our happiness and our gratitude and our appreciation. The spirit of heaven, which God calls each of us who believe, 
to hold and to have and to strive for is the opposite of envy, where we rejoice in the happiness of others. Now, this message is just as much for me as it is for anyone listening today. Because envy tries to seep into our lives. It tries to take over because it knows it can destroy the good and the beautiful. And when we allow that destruction in our lives, it stops us from appreciating all that Jesus has done for us. Jesus laid everything on the line so that he could rejoice in our happiness and our victory. And he calls us to do the same. So that when envy and comparison and hatred seeps into our lives, we can see the life of Jesus Christ. We can capture and hold tight those thoughts and lay them at the cross and instead have a desire as Jesus did and as Jonathan showed us, but to rejoice in the happiness of others. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have given us so many good and wonderful things. Forgive us, Lord, when we take time to compare ourselves with others. Forgive us, Lord, when envy seeps into our hearts and our minds. And we can't help but think of what others have and how that eats and destroys our love and our appreciation and our gratitude. Help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus Christ, to be willing to put other people's happiness before our own, to step into the covenant that Jesus made with us to give us life in all its fullness, and to rejoice and celebrate with other people in their happiness and all that they have. And to step into living a life as Jesus would have us live. To be thankful, to be grateful, and to rejoice in others. Help us, Lord, to capture the thoughts the envious thoughts when they come into our lives. Prompt us, Lord, to see when it happens so that instead of being envious, we can do the complete opposite and rejoice in people's happiness, just as you have done. We pray this in your mighty, generous and glorious name. Amen.